morning, everyone. So nice to be together this morning. Don't you reckon? Let's have a word with the Lord for our own sake and for those around us. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to gather with our brothers and sisters this morning. And we're praying for ourselves and for each other. For your word to sink in deep. We come to you as people who need your word to come in. We're expecting for as children. We look to you. And we hear your voice. And we know you will deeply. In Jesus' name. So last week, Sheldon shared with us one of the most famous stories of the whole Bible, and that is of David and Goliath. And even though knowledge of the Bible seems to be kind of slipping away out of our culture, you still see, even in sports headlines, David and Goliath battle, the language is still being used. It's still a familiar story to a lot of people. And it was a big deal at the time. Not just now, but it was a big deal at the time as well. Um, Kind of like the time when Saul had been appointed king of Israel and this bully of a king from the north, Nahash, whose name means serpent, came against Israel and Saul, the Spirit of God came upon Saul powerfully. You might remember this story from some weeks ago. And he sent message throughout Israel and he said, you get behind me, we are going to deal with this. And he dealt with it. And Samuel saw that the people were recognised. He'd been appointed as king, but he saw this as his opportunity to really get everyone to That was my dad fiddling with those. Not <laughs> That was the moment when Samuel said, let's really get behind this new king. Come on, let's get behind him. So they got behind him and they recognised him as king because he was the king who loved them enough to stand up for them, to defeat their enemies and to save them. Now something had happened between Saul's heroic act of salvation for Israel and this most recent act of heroic saving of Israel of David's. Let me tell you... What has happened? What's happened is that Saul has lost the plot. God's given him some instructions and he's proven himself to be a person who doesn't trust the Lord enough to be obedient. So he was given instructions that he was to wait seven days until Samuel arrived uh, and then to engage in battle and to receive his instructions. He waited. And on the seventh day, Samuel hadn't arrived, so he offered a sacrifice, which he was never permitted to do. He offered a sacrifice in order to seek the Lord's favour. He forced himself. And then um, when Samuel finally arrived, and uh, Saul explained himself, Samuel said, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
and appointed him ruler of his people. So there's a very clear instruction to Saul. Saul, God's got someone else in mind. Now, a little bit further down the track, God gives Saul some other instructions to go and wipe out the Amalekites because of the way they treated Israel when they came out of Egypt. And Saul goes and he does half the job. And Samuel comes to him and Saul greets him and says, What a great day. And Samuel says, Well, what's this bleating of sheep in my ears? You're supposed to have wiped everything out, destroyed everything, devoted it to the Lord through destruction. And once again, Saul explains his disobedience. And Samuel says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Samuel says, I've sinned. Just come back with me. Let's worship the Lord together. Samuel says to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So that's twice now. You are no longer God's chosen king for his people. And then he goes on. uh, Samuel goes to leave, and Saul gets desperate and grabs uh, Samuel's robe, and it tears a piece off. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. Twice he said, You are no longer king. God has rejected you. And twice he said, God is choosing somebody else. Now, the Philistine Goliath stands up and threatens God's people and they are all running for cover and they don't know what to do. And Saul, who's actually head and shoulders above everyone else, stays in his tent and waits for someone else to deal with it. And this little young fella, David, steps up, he slays the giant, cuts off his head, comes back victorious, all of Israel rush in this great victory, the women are singing and dancing, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Now this was the moment, I think, just like Samuel spotted the moment when David, I mean when Saul was confirmed and recognised as king, this was Saul's moment to say, I've been told twice now, very clearly, I'm no longer king. God's chosen someone else. I think I know who that is. What's his reaction? Let's read it together. As they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Do you think it was fairly becoming obvious to him that the kingdom needed to go to someone else and this was him? And yet, instead of doing what was obvious to everyone else, in anger, the scripture says, from that day on, 
Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Sounds a little bit like how the Pharisees treated Jesus. We'll get to that a bit later. Now, someone else was there that day and had a bit of a different response to David. Chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From, uh, verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. You couldn't get two more opposite reactions. Did Jonathan have any reason, do you think, to resist David, to keep him at arm's length, or even to try and eliminate him like Saul did? Well, first of all, he's the king's son, Jonathan. He's the next in line. Not only is he the next in line in terms of his family, the family he belonged to, but he was really the most obvious choice in everyone's eyes right up until this point. Because Jonathan, we might, you might remember from previous stories, he was a man of faith. He said, God can save. He doesn't need lots of people. Come on, Armaberry, come up with me and we'll teach these Philistines a lesson. If the Lord's with us, then no one can stop the Lord from saving. This is Jonathan, mighty warrior. Not only that, but even though uh, in some of the artwork on this story, you see Jonathan and David side by side, arm in arm, good buddies. Jonathan is at least 27 years older than David. So Jonathan is a fully grown man in his prime. And Jonathan's just a young fellow. And yet, Jonathan doesn't say, wait your turn, buddy, I'm next in line. He strips off his royal robe and he puts it on this young bloke's shoulders. He takes off his bow. He takes off his tunic. He even takes off his sword and he gives them all to David. This is incredible, isn't it? Incredible humility on Jonathan's part. What's the difference between Saul and his son. There's two things happening in Saul's heart. Number one, I'll read it to you from verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And reading down a bit further, verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. So there's one thing that's happening in Saul's heart. He's afraid of what he's going to lose because of David. He's afraid. But there's something even more serious, I think, that's going on in Saul's heart. And we have to go back a little bit to identify this clearly. If you want to follow with me, Come to chapter 15. This is after Saul had failed to carry out the proper instructions of God regarding the Amalekites. Chapter 15 and verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, 
15 verse 10 and verse 11 now, I regret that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, there he has set up a monument in his own honour. Hmm, it's interesting, isn't it? He's gone and done half the job, and on his way back, he thought, I know what Israel needs. I think they need a statue of Saul. Down to verse 16. And Samuel reprimands him and says, Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. And in verse 17, Samuel says, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of all the tribes of Israel? What was he? He was once small in his own eyes. What does that mean about Saul now? He's not. He ain't small in his own eyes anymore. Saul is very impressed with Saul. And the Lord, when Saul explains himself and says, oh, look, I just kept a few animals for sacrifices to the Lord. Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. This is a very serious thing to God when the person who's looking after his people has become so full of himself, so full of pride and so full of arrogance. He feels that he fits the bill quite well of being king and he is not about to give that up for anyone. Do you think it's possible for the Lord's people to have pride in their hearts? I think it is. In fact, John, the Apostle John, I find it really interesting actually that when you read the New Testament, you don't find anyone with a title except for Jesus. Even Peter. He's just called Peter. Even James, when James is writing his uh, letter, his epistle, James was actually the head, recognised leader of the church in Jerusalem and biologically the brother of Jesus. And he writes his letter. He doesn't say, James, Bishop James, leader of the church in Jerusalem, and while I'm mentioning it, brother of Jesus Christ. James, a servant of Jesus Christ. This is how he begins his letter. But John, the Apostle John, writes to the churches, and in the third book of John, in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you before, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, has um, stopped us. So there's a, even in the early church, there's people who quite happy to rise to a place of prominence and importance and keep it that way. 
and it's a hindrance. And the scripture says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The harder Saul tried to keep David down, the lower Saul sank. And we find him in his tent, raving like a lunatic, tormented by an evil spirit. And the harder he tried to keep David down, the more he was raised higher and higher, because the Spirit of God was with him. It's a good lesson for us. How would you know if you were proud? Because you might not really want to know. <laughs> but I'll tell you some questions that help me to identify pride in the heart of Dale Skews. There isn't any there anymore, but this is what I used to. Laughing at me. How do you react if someone, if there is a threat that someone might take your place? It could be any place. But a place that gives you a sense of significance or importance. What if someone looks like someone else might take that place? How do you feel? How do you go if you find yourself being overlooked? What happens in your heart? How do you go if someone brings you a word of correction? You cope with that alright? How willing are you to discover or to admit that you are wrong, or that you've been wrong. How difficult is it for you to apologise? How important is it to you that people discover, if they don't already know, what your credentials are, or your experience, or your skills, or your knowledge? How content are you when others are praised or honoured for something that you've had a part in? We can find that our pride is so easily wounded. What do we do with that? I think we name it for what it is. And we bring it to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I see pride in you. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Forgive me. And we do things that Jesus tells us to do in order to put those that pride to death. We do things in secret just for him so that no one else can see. Let's look a little bit more closely at this action of Jonathan. Jonathan could have given up his sword and his robe to David out of fear. Well, here's the coming king. He's just slain this giant. I've got to make sure I'm on his side. I don't want to fight this guy. He is very powerful. But it wasn't like that, was it? And we can have a humility that's like this cringing, fearful thing. But fear was what Saul had in his heart, not Jonathan. What was Jonathan's heart? Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now there is another king that has come, the true and better David, and his name is Jesus. And when Jesus came, he was opposed by many people, just like Saul opposed David, there were many people who opposed Jesus. In fact, before Jesus was even out, had even outgrown infancy, Herod killed all the boys in a certain area under two years old in order to try and get rid of him. Why? Because Saul, uh, not Saul, because Herod wanted to keep his position. When Jesus grew up and he started to preach, then who opposed him? Teachers of the law, the Pharisees. Why? Because they were the ones who had all the knowledge. They were the ones that people looked to for leadership. And now he's this kind of young upstart rabbi. Um, and they opposed him. They kept a jealous eye on him, just like Saul did with David. But there were others too, weren't there? There was John the Baptist. Now everyone was coming to John the Baptist. The whole Judean countryside came out to be baptised by John. He was this impressive spiritual guy. But when Jesus came along, what did John say? They said to John, are you the Christ? And John said, no. And he took off his robe, like Jonathan in the sense, and he said, this is the guy. I saw the Spirit of God come down from heaven as a dove. Here is the king. He must increase. I must decrease. And you've got the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And they came and they were baptised by John. And when John identified Jesus, they followed Jesus. Two reactions, two very different reactions. Just like the reactions to David between Saul and Jonathan, there were these two different reactions to Jesus. And so it is today. The question for us, as we gather here this morning, is which camp are you sitting in? Are you sitting in the camp of Saul or are you sitting in the camp of Jonathan? How would you know? Well, first of all, we need to strip off our robe. What does it mean to strip off your robe? It means that you don't pretend anymore to have a righteousness of your own. It means that you acknowledge that I, I'm lining up with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, actually. Because even though David escaped being pinned to the wall by Saul... Jesus voluntarily became pinned to a cross on public display for all. Why? Because I need forgiveness. Am I willing to take off that robe of self-goodness, of self-dignity, of trying to prop myself up, of trying to help people recognise that I'm important, that my position, my knowledge, my skills, experience, am I willing to strip all that off and say, Jesus, you know what? 
I recognise that you came and you died on the cross because Dale Skews is a sinner just like everyone else. And that's why when people become Christians, they are baptised because they're saying, I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. I need to be cleansed. And so they go down into the water. But the other thing about Jonathan is, he stripped off his, his robe and he gave all of his weapons over to David and he entered into this covenant of love with David. Now this is so fantastic. Now when Jesus gave the Last Supper just before Jesus went to be crucified, he shared the bread and, and the wine with his disciples and he said, this blood is a new covenant. I'm making a new covenant with you. And he invites every one of us to enter into a covenant of love with him. Why was Jonathan able to so pair it with Saul? Why was he able to just do that? To take off all of his dignity, all of his rights, all of his entitlements, all of his power, all of his weapons. And he just gave it to David. Because if you're in a covenant of love with the future king, you've got nothing to fear. You don't need your weapons anymore. You don't need your self-dignity anymore. All of your dignity, all of your protection comes from the fact that you are in a loving covenant, an unbreakable covenant with the king of the universe, Jesus. Now Jesus is coming He's shown his love through his cross and he's shown his power through his resurrection. And in Acts chapter 17 verse 30 it says, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world of justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus is going to come in glory. Which camp are we going to sit in? Those who are holding on to our own dignity, our own power, our own pride, holding back because of our fears, or are we going to be like Jonathan? Jesus, I recognise you as the King of love. I trust you. I believe in you. I belong to you. Let me finish with these words of Jesus himself. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So we're called to do. Take off the robe. Take off the sword. Hand it all over to Jesus. That's the cost. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world in forfeit their soul? You can be king of your life for a time. You can keep your dignity. You can keep your own plans and ambitions. But what good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what good? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory. He is. He's going to come in His Father's glory with His angels. And then He will reward each person according to what they have done. And that's when we will be so glad that we've laid down all of our pride all of our pretensions and put our trust in the King.
Jesus is your chosen King. Thank you, Jesus, for making it so clear that you are the King we can trust. That you would be pinned to a Roman cross and bleed out of love for us, to forgive us for our sins. Lord, we expose to you all of our pride, all of our resistance, all of our fears. And Lord, we confess to you the soul-like parts of our heart. And we give them up. We give them up. We know you are the coming King. You will be the judge of the whole world. And when that time comes, Lord Jesus, we want to be found in covenant with you. Thank you for inviting us to come into an unbreakable, committed relationship with you. We accept your invitation. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat>